This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. It's my pleasure now to introduce our interviewer for tonight, Matt Hall. Matt is the editorial and opinion director at the San Diego Union Tribune, where he's worked since 2001. He manages the ideas and opinion section, writing and editing editorials, and overseeing op-ed commentary, letters to the editor, and a broader exchange of ideas about San Diego. He previously managed the newsroom's social media, and before this was a Metro columnist who reported and wrote four columns a week. He's been named blogger, feature writer, and critic of the year by the San Diego chapter of the Society of Professional Journalists, and blogger and columnist of the year by the San Diego Press Club. So uh, please join me now in welcoming Matt Hall, who will introduce Bill Keller. Thank you. Thank you, everyone, for coming. Uh, Bill is the editor-in-chief of The Marshall Project, which I think most of you uh, know by now is a nonprofit news organization that covers the U.S. criminal justice system. Uh, this is a homecoming of sorts for Bill. He's a 1970 graduate of Pomona College in California. He spent 30 years at the New York Times as a reporter, columnist, and editor. Uh, in 1989, his work won a Pulitzer for international reporting for covering the USSR. He was executive editor of the Times from 2003 to 2011. And speaking of Pulitzers, uh, the Marshall Project... Uh, was fortunate enough uh, to win uh, a Pulitzer. It's first last month, 18 months after its launch, which is pretty impressive. Uh, more impressive is that it won for a 12,000-word piece of journalism, which in this day of 140-count uh, Twitter uh, posts is <laughs> remarkable. Uh, that story, if you have not read it, you should. It is an, a remarkable piece of journalism. It's called An Unbelievable Story of Rape. Uh, and also, I'd be uh, remiss if I didn't mention that the Marshall Project was also a finalist in the investigative reporting category. Uh, so please, warm welcome for Bill. Thank you. But before we get talking, I'd like to kind of ground us in some statistics. We're here tonight to talk about two things uh, that I'm interested in, criminal uh, justice and uh, journalism, and how they have changed uh, in recent years particularly. Um, Bill was at Pomona College for a criminal justice symposium just two months ago, I think. Mm -hmm. uh, and I lifted some of these statistics off of their website. They're pretty amazing. Uh, They'll kind of give us a foundation for this discussion tonight. The U.S. has 5% of the world's population, yet it has 25% of the world's prisoners. As a country, we spend $70 billion on corrections each year. Uh, and over the course of 30 years, roughly, from 1980 to 2008, the number of people imprisoned in the U.S. increased from 500,000 to 2.3 million just think about that for a second. That's, that's staggering. Uh, more statistics. African Americans and Hispanics make up about 60% of prisoners. That's a number from 2008. Yet they're 25% of the U.S. population. 
Uh, and two more statistics for you. One in three African-American males born today can expect to be imprisoned in their lifetime. Two of three prisoners reoffend. Uh, that doesn't sound like a system that's working too well right there. Um, but I want to ask you about that. Your mission statement for the Marshall Project, uh, which I imagine you spent some time, you personally and the organization, uh, uh, in, in drafting, Say that, says that you seek to create and sustain a sense of national urgency about the U.S. criminal justice system. Why those words, create and sustain a sense of national urgency? That's an interesting way to approach it. Um, well, thanks for the kind introduction, by the way. Um, we're, as, an, as a news organization, we're a little bit unusual because we do have this focus on a single issue and because we're inspired by... Um, the, the, the vision of a founder who sees this as a civil rights cause, the, the civil rights cause of our time. I'm fine with the idea that we have a purpose. I mean, most journalistic undertakings have a purpose of some kind. Uh, if you're at the New York Times, you wake up in the morning thinking, um, I'm doing something good for democracy. I'm creating an informed electorate. At, at, at the Marshall Project, it's a little more close to the ground. You, you have a, a sense of a particular system that is demonstrably, from the numbers you've just read, not doing its job. Um, but we, we make very clear to everyone who asks that we're not an advocacy group. We're not endorsing pieces of legislation. We're not supporting specific candidates. Um, our job is to uh, shine a bright light on things that aren't working, uh, and actually to write about things that seem to be working well, too. We don't do nearly enough of that, but we try. Um, so that the voters can uh, uh, hold public officials accountable. How many, uh, how many staffers in the newsroom when you left the New York Times? 1250. And how 12. many at the Marshall Project right now? Uh, in the newsroom, 18. So that's... <laughs> Big difference. Talk about going from one environment to the other. I think I read somewhere that you, call, you, you said it was scary. It sounds it, but uh, it's an ambitious level of reporting that you're doing there. Yeah, well, the biggest difference is when you run a newsroom of 1,250 journalists, uh, you, you don't talk to all of them every day. So every, a lot, uh, you, it's dependent, your, your ability to run the place depends on your willingness to delegate. Uh, and the higher up you get in the structure, the less contact you have with reporters and s stories. Uh, and you begin to deal in the realm of um, grievances and organization and budgets. And um, I mean, I'm not, uh, being executive editor of the New York Times is one of the great jobs in journalism, and so I'm not whining about it at all. But um, being foreign editor of the New York Times was actually a lot more fun. And what I've got now is, is much closer to that kind of smaller operation. I could talk to everybody who works for me every day if I want to. And I've kind of regained that really thrilling experience where you take you know, a group of smart reporters, a couple of editors, and you sit down and say, okay, how are we going to approach this story? What, what, you know, where's, where are the interesting uh, entry, points of entry to, to an exciting story? Um, and that's kind of what keeps me thriving. It seems like at the New York Times, it's easy to parse journalism. Like you do stories, they're international, they're national, they're local, 
they're on certain subjects. With your, with your organization now, you have one subject. You know, how do you decide which stories to tell? Which stories are worth your staff's time? Well, I mean, it's a, it's a big subject. When you, you know, we do policing, we do courts, we do prisons, we do reentry after prison, we do an, uh, a fair amount of writing about. Um, uh, ways that people end up in prison. So we write about drug laws, we write about immigration policy. Um, so it's, it's a pretty, what the military describes as a target-rich environment uh, for, for journalism. It, how we decide what to do is we try to resist the temptation to cover the news. We, do, we have a morning newsletter where um, a brilliant man who describes himself as a recovering lawyer um, combs the, uh, the journalism world across the country and picks what he thinks are the most important news stories, the most interesting commentaries, and so on. Um, so, so we pay attention to the news in that way. But with a staff of 18 people, including eight staff writers, um, it, it would be foolish for us to say, um, oh, something's going on in Ferguson, Missouri. Let's send a reporter down to... Uh, stand in the pack with all the other reporters and tell us what the mood of the street is. I mean, we're, we're going to look for a way to write about Ferguson, but it's going to be, we're looking for what people are missing or supplying some context or, uh, or even uh, inviting a commentary from somebody who's got a contrarian point of view. So we try to be sure that we're adding some value to the discussion. Otherwise, we'd just be like, you know, gerbils in a wheel. Uh-huh. What's your measure of success? I, uh, coming from a journalism background, uh, mentioned the Pulitzers up front, but is it Pulitzers? Is it policy change? Is it just the feeling that, you know, at day's end or week's end or month's end, you've done good work? How do you measure success? Um, I'm going to give you a complicated answer because <laughs> I don't have a really simple answer to it. I mean, it, at the New York Times, it was just, you know, a, a good story was its own justification. You didn't have to explain yourself. We have uh, uh, donors, foundations, and individuals uh, who, particularly the foundations, want to know what have you accomplished and how do you measure it. And this is, this is true not just in the nonprofit part of journalism, but in the for-profit world. Um, but in the for-profit world, at least you have revenues to, to count. We, we measure it in a, in a number of ways, some of which uh, w- w- we, we provide because we're asked by donors, even though we don't put a lot of faith in them, like traffic. Um, we can tell you uh, how many clicks we got on a particular story on our website, but most, and for most of what we do, we can't tell you how many people actually read it, um, in part because the fact that somebody clicked on a piece doesn't mean they read it, but also because we uh, do almost everything we do in partnership with larger news organizations that serve as a sort of megaphone for our work. So we may partner with NPR, as we have on a number of occasions, um, and we know that we got 50,000 page views, say, on the story on our site, but how do you account for the millions of NPR listeners uh, who, who got the same story? So the metrics are tricky. Um, the, the current vogue in nonprofit um, journalism circles is impact. Um, everybody's trying to figure out a way to measure impact. Sometimes it's obvious. Um, uh, you know, the, the story that won the Pulitzer is being used 
uh, in police academies to teach people how to deal with rape victims. Uh, that's, that's impact that's close to my heart and not quite as close as the Pulitzer, but it count, counts, for a, <laughs> counts for a lot. Um, you know, but you keep track of politicians who cite your, your piece. You know, the, the, the fantasy is always that you're going to bring down a corrupt politician or um, you know, lead to some correction of a massive injustice, but, it, but most of the impact you have is more incremental than that. Mm-hmm. Um, I wish I could just say, you know, I know it when I see it. I know success when I see it. But we've built a very strong name for ourselves. I, I think most people who deal professionally in the, you know, the, the lawyers, the advocates, the policymakers, the scholars, the journalists who cover the subject uh, now, I think all sort of know who we are uh, and, and have given give us some credibility. That counts for something, um, but I don't. I don't know. We're still trying to find that elusive thing called uh, uh, impact. Yeah. No, I think that that's a good answer. I think it is complex. What really intrigued me is backstory. If some of you guys may not, may know or may not know this, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, but how that story, the Pulitzer winning story, came along was that your reporter and a ProPublica reporter were both reporting it out. And one definition of success as a journalist is. I beat the other journalists to the story. I published it first, made the impact first. They were approaching it on parallel tracks, basically, and then heard that they were working on the story, and instead of rushing to get to it first, they combined forces. That's pretty interesting. That shows you kind of one way that journalism has shifted. Talk a bit about that and that decision. Um, yeah, I mean, it's been shifting for a while, but it's it's become much more prevalent just in the last couple of years. I mean, actually, the first time I can remember doing something of that kind was when I was at the Times and ProPublica, which was then, I think, maybe two years old, three years old, uh, came to us with a story about a hospital, a memorial hospital in New Orleans during Katrina, where the doctors and nurses were deciding which patients deserved to be saved and which ones didn't because they couldn't save them all. And it's a gripping, heart-rending, deeply reported piece. Uh, and we ran it and took up most of a full issue of the New York Times Magazine. And even then, you know, we were, it was a new thing, you know, not invented here. Um, putting it in the magazine was a little safer than putting it on the front page. Um, in contrast, one of the first pieces we did, that you, you mentioned um, the, the uh, story that was a Pulitzer finalist in investigative um, was a collaboration with the New York Times on uh, brutality and the lack of accountability of prison guards in New York State prisons. The first piece that we ran uh, was on Attica and a, and a case of three guards who um, beat a guy within an inch of his life. Uh, and it was on the front page of the New York Times and jumped to three inside pages on a Sunday. So clearly the, the idea that you can um, collaborate with somebody else has, has advanced considerably since, since the, the early days. How do you decide who to partner with? ProPublica was one, but you've partnered with the New York Times, the Washington Post, Slate, uh, uh, NPR, others? I'd, I'd like to say that we have a completely rational process. Um, <laughs> um, I mean, in our first year and a half or so, we've, we've been sort of promiscuous. It was, it was like, let's try out as many different partners as we can, and then, then we'll have a triage meeting where we decide 
you know, who was the, the best partner for a particular story. We, we've gotten a little less promiscuous. Um, we've, uh, uh, some things that started as kind of transactions have turned into relationships. For example, um, once a week we do a feature called Life Inside that is usually a first person account by a, a prison inmate, but it's often uh, a, a, a corrections officer, a parole officer, a cop, a, the family of somebody who's incarcerated. Um, and it's, the idea is not to kind of tell us why you got screwed by the system, but it's just tell us some aspect of life inside. We've done things by inmates about what it's like to have cancer in prison. Uh, what it's like, how do, you, how do you save money on a, the tiny pay that you get for prison labor? Things like that. Um, and we found that uh, Vice really had an appetite for this. Uh, you know, Vice has a huge audience of millennials, mostly millennials. Uh, now we, we've made it a weekly feature. Uh, we always do it with Vice. They um, pay a little for it. They, do, they commission a fact checker, which is not an easy thing to do when you're fact checking somebody who's locked up. Um, and, and, and that's been just a very mutually satisfying relationship. I, I, I think we'll do more of that. Sometimes, you know, if it's a story about pol federal policy, um, obviously the Washington Post is the ideal partner, or maybe Politico, because people in Washington read that. Um, I think a lot of the people who control our lives are still in an analog world, and being on the front page of the Washington Post is more likely to get Congress's attention than being on, the web on any website. That's interesting, and uh, it, it kind of raises a question um, I wanted to ask. I mean, I was a long-time City Hall reporter, and I was always cognizant of the fact that I was not writing for City Hall. I was writing for the people whose lives were affected by the policies of City Hall. So the big question, anytime a journalist undertakes anything, whether it's a story or a site like the Marshall Project, is who's your audience? Is it Congress, politicians, guy on the street, person in Ferguson, guy in Black Lives Matter? Like, who, who are you writing for? Who, who is your audience? Um, I think of us as having two audiences, both of them really important. Um, we have an audience of 20-some thousand people who, are, who subscribe to the newsletter in the morning. Uh, I think those are mostly people who are in the criminal justice world in one way or another. Um, as I said before, the scholars, the advocates, the reporters, the policymakers. Um, Although we've begun to attract people who are just students who are interested in the subject. There's a lot of um, kind of growing interest on campuses about this issue. But that's one audience, and that audience matters because they have influence. Um, but then, you know, uh, you read the mission statement. Our aim is to raise a national level of a sense of, of urgency about the conditions in our, in, in our criminal justice system. Uh, and that means that you need to, you want to inform people to the point where um, it's an issue they consider when they vote. It's an issue they expect their candidates to have, a, have positions on. Um, uh, so, you know, for, for those people, we're looking for a very large mainstream audience, and we try to hit them with social media, but mainly through the partnerships. You touched on this a little bit, but one of the things that I liked about uh, your site is that you have a letter from our editor uh, on there. And the site, if you guys uh, uh, want to look at this later, uh, themarshallproject.org. 
you wrote that you're not here to promote any particular agenda or ideology. In an age of Black Lives Matter and us against them and good guys versus bad guys, how is that possible? I, I, I don't, this isn't the first polarized moment in our history, although we, it is an extraordinarily polarized year. Um, I just think you, reporters have to be trained to report against their instincts, to report against, if you've come to a story with a hypothesis, I think this story shows X, be prepared to talk to all the people who are going to disagree with you and, and, and weigh, the ex, weigh the evidence. Uh, and sometimes reporters fall short of that, and that's what editors are for. Um, but that's always been, to my mind, the, the highest responsibility of, of a, a news organization is to, um, to be fair and dispassionate. I mean, everybody's got opinions um, uh, about all kinds of things. Um, but it's the ability to lay those opinions aside and um, let the evidence tell the story um, that distinguishes us from, you know, advocacy journalism. I have nothing. I mean, I've spent two stints as a column columnist at the Times, um, uh, so I've done opinion journalism. I I respect it. I read a lot of it, um, but I don't. Uh, and I don't think I think it's a false choice to say, uh, as some people do, all journalists should bear their souls so that we know where they're coming from, and then they should just you know write a, write a polemic. Um, uh, I think, for one thing, if you um, start out by declaring your personal point of view on the subject, there's a, it's human nature to want to make the evidence conform to what you believe. Uh, so it, it, it just even as just as an intellectual discipline, saying, "Okay, I'm going to I'm going to approach this w- uh, with an open mind," um, produces better journalism. I read a piece where you talked about the difference between objectivity and impartiality. What do those words mean to you? And is objectivity dead in journalism, or or not? No, I mean. I, the word just conjures up a kind of perfect, a, a level of perfection, and, and I don't think anything about journalism is perfect, uh, or hardly ever. Um, impartiality means that you haven't taken a side before you did the reporting, um, and that you, you, know, you give both sides uh, the, the, what they deserve. That's pretty close to this quote. In that story, you actually said, I avoid the word objective, which suggests a mythical, a mythical state of truth. So you're on message. <laughs> Mythical state of truth. Uh, this really struck me. You, you once wrote that, I think it was in that same letter to the editor on your site, that the U.S. has a corrections regime that rarely corrects. That's interesting. As a wordsmith, as someone who values words and their precise meanings, it's interesting that the system is called a correction system, and yet it rarely pick up on that thought and tell us more about why you think that is and what can be done about it. Yeah, well, the overwhelming majority of people who go to prison, uh, even people with long sentences, even people in a lot of cases with life sentences, the overwhelming majority of them, 90-some percent, are going to be released. So what, do you, what kind of people do you want to come out of prisons is, is the question. Just, and, and that's um, both an economic question, you want them to be productive, but it's first and foremost a safety question. You want them to come out with some alternative to sticking up the nearest liquor store. Uh, 
Um, and we do, you, you mentioned briefly the recidivism rate, that's something like 75% of the people who um, are released from prison are rearrested within five years. Um, that's, on the face of it, a failure. Um, a lot of places are experimenting with um, uh, more robust programs in the prison, um, uh, but, you know, that's sometimes a hard sell to politicians, particularly when people feel like their own paychecks aren't that fulsome. Um, year before last, Governor Cuomo in New York proposed a million dollars in additional money for college training inside prisons. Uh, and he just got hammered by the legislature, people saying, um, you know, so many, on, on, uh, you know, true. Uh, law-abiding citizens can't afford to send their kids to college, and yet you want to educate thugs and rapists. Um, and he backed down. Um, but you would think, uh, you know, a correction system um, that let people out prepared to rejoin society with some skills, some basic education, some self-discipline, uh, uh, would, would be something that you'd want to celebrate as a success. Mm -hmm. How much of that can an institution control? How much of that is the individual? And how much of that is the institution when you're talking about folks in prison? Well, I mean, prisons, most prisons are run by state governments, so it's a state-by-state -state question. Um, you know, the federal system has a small portion, and then county jails are a different matter because jails are supposed to be for short-term residents pre-trial, awaiting trial, or people with sentences generally a year or less. But it, so it's, it's on the state governments, really. Along with this notion that um, your site is not one to take sides, but more to kind of discuss the issue, you talk about how it's a hub for debate and accord. And when I uh, just recently became the editorial and opinion director of the Union Tribune, we renamed our section Ideas and Opinions to show that we value debate and not just decisions. Uh, talk a bit about that. I know we kind of touched on this thread a little bit, but the notion that you're trying to start a place, you're a, a kind of a safe space for discussion rather than edicts of what works and what doesn't. Yeah. Of, of all the things that we've declared uh, uh, to be our ambitions, I think the, the commentary is the, is the one that is sort of least fulfilled so far. Um, Partly because it's, it requires a lot of, as you know, a lot of attention. You know, you, um, you want well-written, well-reasoned um, uh, exchanges. You don't want screeds or people preaching to the choir. Um, you want it to be interesting. And that takes a lot of editorial attention, uh, particularly since we're not letting our staff writers write a, a commentary. So um, you're drawing from a large pool of people with, shall we say, a wide range of ability. Um, so we, what we have mostly done is two things. We, we sponsor um, debates on social media platforms, on Facebook, and we've done a couple of, um, kind of um, what do they call them, dialogues on DIG. Um, and then we, we do publish commentary on the website and offer it to partners. Uh, most of that is, it comes from... Um, people who are academics or lawyers. Um, 
and we, you know, we haven't that idea that we would have this kind of lively town square where um, you know the, the scholars and the ordinary Joes would get together and challenge each other to raise their game. Um, we haven't accomplished that yet, but that's you know we're still babies. <laughs> uh, talk about the name, uh, the Marshall Project, obviously named after Thurgood Marshall. Uh, a giant in the criminal justice system, first African-American Supreme Court justice. Uh, Why the Marshall Project? Uh, Neil Barsky, who is the founder of the Marshall Project, the former journalist who um, made a lot of money in hedge funds uh, and um, wanted to do something to give back. His parents were both active in the civil rights movement and uh, he um, read this book, terrific book, called Devil in the Grove by Gilbert King. It won a Pulitzer several years ago. It was a story of um, uh, a case in Florida, kind of familiar to, from lots of movies and, and books. This is a case of uh, several young black men who are arrested and charged with raping a white woman. And King uses that story to lay out the really the kind of um, dark undercurrent of racism in the South. And the hero of the book um, is Thurgood Marshall, who at that point was a, the, the, the star lawyer from the, for the, um, um, the Legal Defense Fund of the NAACP. Uh, uh, and Neil was obviously struck by that, but also at the end of the book, um, uh, King includes some lo- letters, from basically testimonials from people who lived in the South at that time who said, if only we'd known this was going on, we might have done something different. And it was that, the combination of Thurgood Marshall and this sort of sense of complacency that, uh, that made Devil in the Grove Neil's favorite book. Uh, and he decided that we would, with all due humility, um, expropriate the Marshall name. I like that idea that there's a sense of complacency and you've got to shake people up and let them know what is going on. Yeah. Very much easier in the social media age. Um, I mean, Ferguson was a hashtag before, uh, 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 you know, that night everyone knew about it. Uh, when the two journalists were arrested and thrown in jail, everyone knew about it. Uh, talk to me a bit about how you use social media to get your message out, and also if you use it as a net to kind of catch sources and stories as well? We do. The individual reporters use it differently for, uh, uh, for sourcing materials. I mean, if you're, if you're writing about a particular problem and you want to find a population of people who have experienced that problem, you know, social media is, is a great way to round up, a, you know, a long list of sources. Um, getting the message out is just a matter of um, you know, tweeting and Facebooking everything we do, um, and occasionally, you know, Facebook has a. Uh, well, every once in a while, we'll invest a little money, and they put you in on the kind of premium, the business class Facebook, um, uh, and you get more traffic out of that. Is that a big part of your business model, using money on Facebook, particularly? I know that's, you know, that's the kind of king of, of social media traffic. Facebook Live, obviously, is a big component of that. Yeah, well, Facebook rules They want the your world. money, right? They want you to pay for it. Uh, yeah, I mean, we don't... We only do that selectively. Some places do it much less selectively. 
But yes, there is a, a kind of honors club at, or, you know, pick your favorite airline bonus points club um, uh, on Facebook. Um, I mean, I think, you know, Facebook rules the world at the moment and um, may end up being the gatekeeper of journalism in the, on planet Earth. Mm-hmm. Speaking of social media, you almost five years ago uh, wrote a column. You knew this was coming, right? <laughs> I know it's coming. <laughs> wrote a column in the New York Times called The Twitter Trap, where you wrote, uh, before we succumb to digital idolatry, we should consider that innovation often comes at a price. And sometimes I wonder if the price is a piece of ourselves. Obviously, you have changed a lot in five years. Twitter has changed a lot in five years. The industry has changed a lot in five years. How, how has it, and, and it has your perception of it particularly shifted? Um, I have a, a, a long and somewhat tortured history with uh, our, the digital world, and that's totally aside from the fact that um, you, you know, a lot of newsrooms have been decimated by the internet. Um, in fact, in fairness to the internet, before that was happening, newspaper publishers were decimating newsrooms. One of my former employers, the Dallas Times Herald, was a great newspaper in a two-newspaper town. There was the Morning News and um, the Herald Tribune, the Times Herald, and they went at it every day on political reporting, investigative reporting, sports, um, you know, business coverage. Uh, and then one day after I had left, um, the Below Company, which owns the Morning News, came in um, and bought the Times Herald for fifty-some million dollars and closed it the next day. So I always bring that up before I start criticizing the internet for decimating the news business. I spent most of my eight years as executive editor trying to bring the newsroom into the digital age. I, I am well aware of the, the wonderful things that it can do in terms of making news available to, to people who uh, don't have access to a newspaper or in countries where nobody's allowed to um, report the news. Uh, It's a great tool for telling stories in different original ways. Um, It's a great, as I've said before, a a way to reach out to sources and get information. But my misgivings are several. One of them is, and that was the basis of that column, that um, I think we, this this did not begin with the digital age, but we give something up when technology comes at a price. Um, You know, people used to memorize books and then Gutenberg came along and <laughs> invented this thing called the printing press and people stopped memorizing books. Google came along and we stopped remembering anything. Because <laughs> why, why, why would you need to remember anything if you can just pull out your phone and look it up? I, 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 I mean, people do that all the time. You know, I used to think I knew my way around Los Angeles a bit. I, I, I'm helpless without a GPS system now because you know, that little voice will tell me that in 0.2 miles I'm going to take the off-ramp. Um, so I, th- I think that we make some sacrifices in terms of our, we've, re- we've outsourced a lot of our thinking to the internet. So that's one thing. Another thing is, um, one that's becoming more obvious this year is, I just think that it has cr- uh, contributed to a polarization in the country. Um, you know, it's one thing to watch a, you know, in, in the days of Walter Cronkite or in the days when newspapers flourished, you would get uh, a, a 
I hope, impartial diet of information and a, a competing points of view. Uh, now you can construct your own online news organization and it can be an echo chamber of everything you already believe. Or you, you know, my older da oldest daughter um, gets all of her news from Facebook, which means it's being sent to her by her friends who are probably pretty much thinking the same way she is. Um, so I worry that we're not talking to each other across ideological lines as much. Um, and then the other thing that I hold against the internet is it's sped everything up to such a degree that there's no time for, in our business, reporting, reflection, rewriting, um, you know, all of those things that improve the quality and trustworthiness of what you read, in, in, what you read online or in print. One of the interesting things about your site is that you have this segment called The Record, mm -hmm. which is relatively new. It's a curated collection of 14,000 links mm -hmm. searchable by subject. Right. It's, if you haven't seen it and want to go to their site, it's, it's, if you're interested in criminal justice, it's an amazing way to get information on criminal justice. How do you decide what to include in that and then how to choose keywords so you can search by subject death penalty, for example, or sentencing? Like how, do you, how do you make those decisions? Uh, for the keyword question, I'll have to defer to my digital managing editor. I've got a brilliant digital team. Mm -hmm. And I trust them to solve those problems. But the, the, the database that, that goes into that feature uh, consists of the things that are in the morning newsletter, um, obviously all of our own stuff. And then um, we encourage people on the staff when they run across an interesting story that maybe is too old to put in the newsletter um, uh, or didn't kind of make the cut but they thought was really important, they're licensed to add it to the database. We've talked about, at some point, opening it up more, but you know, that way, that's a potentially slippery slope. Yeah, I think it's a fascinating thing. I think it's a good thing to do. Um, and it shows you maybe how your mission might, may have changed, right? Because you, did you have that idea at the beginning uh, when you first launched the Marshall Project to have a place that would be like an encyclopedic kind of catch-all of all criminal justice reporting, not just your own? No, but when you hire really smart internet people, and we've got a small but uh, extremely smart team, um, that's what they do for fun. Is they, invent, they call them products. Um, they invent products, you know, like new ways to do stuff that you, that, you, know, that you consider a pain in the neck. Uh, uh, they've got others that they're working on. They invented a, a thing called Next to Die, which is a tracker uh, of... Um, all uh, upcoming executions. Uh, you can get a little information on who's going to be the next person ex scheduled for ex execution. Um, click on it and find out what they did, what the argument in their trial was like. We do that with some a number of partners in states that are um, prolific death penalty states. Uh, and it's beautifully designed, um, very user-friendly. Um, at the outset, I had no idea we were going to want to do this, but you know, we have these inventive guys sitting around thinking and they come up with a lot of ideas and every once in a while they come up with a real winner. Yeah. yeah the time frame of the Marshall Project is really interesting because uh, it was February of 2014 that you told Neiman Lab when you were making this, the, the, the switch to this new project that part of the appeal is that it's scary. 
So that was February 2014, and everyone remembers, who's in this room probably, the insanity that happened around the country in 2014. Uh, August was Ferguson, and then your launch was around mid-November, the 15th, yeah, I think. Right. Ten days later, um, excuse me, seven days later was when Tamir Rice was killed in Cleveland. He was the 12-year-old boy who had a pellet gun who was shot. Three days after that, grand jury chooses not to indict Darren Wilson in Ferguson. Uh, and then right around that same time frame, maybe a day later, video of the Tamir Rice shooting is released. Now let's unpack that for a second. You guys launch, and your mission is not to dip into the news of the day, but to take kind of a 30,000-foot view. When all this is happening in that 10-day stretch, does that change? How, how, how did you react to that news, and, and did that change your game plan? That was sort of our baptism of fire. I mean, and I, and I think we navigated it pretty successfully. I mean, there is that temptation to, you know, just write something, even if it's just like assembling what everybody else has written. And we did a little of, of that, like here are the five pieces you should read about Ferguson. Um, but we, um, we went, got through that period looking for things that should be reported but the, that weren't being reported. So, for example, in Ferguson, one piece we did, uh, which was widely um, imitated, I'd like to think, uh, was uh, I mean, that, that Ferguson is essentially a story about tension between largely white police forces and communities of color that they suppose are supposed to serve, uh, which is now, of course, a, a, a national discussion. Um, we wondered what it's like to be a black cop these days. So we sent a couple of our reporters out to interview black cops, and it was, I mean, obviously they're conflicted, but it was a point of view that I wasn't hearing anywhere else in the, the coverage. Um, when you remember the case of Walter Scott, who was the guy who was chased by cops, jumped out of his car, ran, uh, the cop followed it behind him and, then, and shot him in the back as he was running. That was all on, on video, too. Um, one of our reporters came in and said, you know, I've been thinking about the question of why was he running away? I mean, you know, the smart thing to do is just like hold, sit in your seat and put your hands up. Uh, and he discovered that the, the family believed that the reason that Walter Scott was running was because he had, um, he was behind, he was in, in arrears on his child support payments. Uh, and um, it turns out that, it's, that this was something that's well known in African-American communities, uh, but not so widely known and not much written about, uh, that uh, a lot of men end up in jail for... Uh, either because they can't or they won't pay their child support payments. Uh, and Walter Scott was in arrears. And the speculation of his family was that he knew this time he was going to be in jail. Um, so it was an opportunity to write about um, this whole phenomenon of, I mean, how, how does it help the family if you take the breadwinner uh, and put him somewhere where he's going to earn no bread? Um, uh, you know, how does that, what, what good does that do the family? Uh, anyway, so we wrote a, that, that was our take on that. Uh, we've done some, some we've approached just by sort of going big. So there's been a, a lot of reporting out of Chicago uh, for its, uh, a couple of uh, high-profile cases of 
um, people shot by police, um, uh, protests, and so on. Uh, that time we, we, we decided we'd try to do something a little more ambitious. It turns out Chicago is the, a, a kind of a laboratory for um, innovative programs and in how to improve relations between police and communities. So you have scholars from John Jay College and Yale and all, all, all these think tanks, which under the previous police chief was encouraged. And they've all um, set up shop in the, the most dangerous neighborhoods of Chicago and, and begun doing their thing, tra training programs for police, outreach programs to gangs and stuff. And so the question was, I mean, it, it wasn't working because Chicago's murder rate is still going up. Uh, the tensions between the the inner city and the police force are, if anything, worse than ever. Uh, so was this a failure of the experiments or was this a failure of Chicago? Uh, and we sent a reporter twice to Chicago. She interviewed cops, she interviewed residents, she interviewed officials and, and wrote a long piece, which we, we partnered with Time Magazine on that one. Um, so that's a long answer to your question, but you know, we, we very quickly out of the gate found that we that our subject was all over the place yeah. uh, and and that's how we tried to deal with it makes me think of another question that you sent a reporter to cleveland how, how small outfit we mentioned some of the kind of uh, uh cities that have come under scrutiny recently ferguson and cleveland and you mentioned chicago baltimore obviously how do you decide where and when to send your reporters versus you know, saving money and sitting in, a, in, in your office making phone calls where they can do high-level reporting as well. Like, how, how much value do you place on boots on the ground in a location? I think that sort of number one principle of journalism is go. Mm -hmm. So, and uh, it's easier to say when you've got a $200 million budget and you're the New York Times. Not so easy when you have a you know, four point something million dollar budget and, um, you know, a staff of eight reporters and a little freelance money. So we, we have to pick our shots more carefully. Um, and, uh, um, we, 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 do, we do go to a lot of um, places, but it's usually to find something that, that is a, a kind of microcosm of a larger national problem. Um, there are some places like Chicago and New York that are so big that whatever happens there is, is, has um, uh, resonance in, in other cities, and you can use them as a... I mean, like, for example, all of those, those um, policing experiments that Chicago um, adopted have been copied in places from New York to Oakland. Um, so that was a really national story, even though it was very Chicago-focused. Um, and one thing we've been talking a lot about lately, actually, since you asked, uh, is California. Um, we have a good freelance reporter who, who's done some really nice stuff in California, but um, I mean, I grew up in California, so I'm a little biased, but California, in criminal justice, as in so many other things, California is the great kind of proving ground of these theories. So we're now five years in, into the court-ordered realignment, as it was called, where the courts up to the Supreme Court said that the state had to reduce its prison populations significantly. And we're, what, two years, a year and a half away from Proposition 47, which took a lot of 
low-level drug crimes and property crimes and turn them into misdemeanors. Um, we don't really know very much about how either of those things is working. And yet those are, you know, if there's a nationwide or state-by-state -state campaign to reduce prison populations uh, because we incarcerate people longer than other countries do or because of the expense or for whatever reason, California is, is a textbook. Um, it's a textbook that isn't getting a lot of attention these days. So I'm, I'm hoping uh, we'll be spending some time in California. <laughs> California journalists, there you go. The gauntlet's been thrown. Do some reporting on, the, on those issues. Uh, who's doing good reporting on criminal justice besides the Marshall Project? Oh, dear. I mean, I'm a little wary of giving a list because I'll leave people out. Um, Miami Herald has done excellent reporting on their prison system. Uh, Texas has a number of, the Texas Monthly has a, a couple of really fine writers and the Texas Tribune reprints a lot of our stuff. Um, so they're interested. The, uh, I think both, both the Washington Post and the New York Times have upped their game, particularly the Times. I mean, when I was executive editor, um, we, ne we didn't have a prisons beat. Uh, and given the extent to which prisons are both uh, uh, touch the lives of huge numbers of New Yorkers but, and are also a, a kind of... Um, local industry in much of many upstate communities, uh, I, I think in hindsight that that was something that we, that was something we missed. Is that a um, failing on journalism writ large, that, we, that more journalists didn't pay attention to these? I mean, are we partially to blame for yeah, some of these sure issues? Yeah, we are. Of course we are. We're part of the problem. I mean, I think um, as a general rule, we do a much better job of covering crime than covering criminal justice, and that's because we're programmed to cover events, mm -hmm. um, things that happen. It's harder to cover institutions, which are maybe not quite so sexy as events. Uh, plus, institutions take a long time to unravel and sort out and make sense of. Um, so, yeah, I think we're partly to blame for the inattention that's uh, the, and the lack of a public urgency, sense of public urgency. What could we have done differently as an industry or as journalists? Uh, we could have started paying attention much earlier. How a lot of that, we, we pay attention to things that people pay attention to. A lot, a lot of that is what politicians pay attention to, right? We're in a presidential election cycle. Um, a lot of the reporting is what they want to talk about, right or wrong. Uh, how do you see criminal justice rippling through this presidential cycle? Um, if at all. No, it is. It's, ri it's ripples. It's not waves. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, but the, there's been um, a fair amount of attention given to Bill Clinton's 1994 crime bill, which uh, on the one hand included the, the you know, protections for women and um, after-school programs and other things that would be appealing to the left, but also included incentives to states to uh, uh, keep people in prison longer uh, uh, and um, kind of set off a wave of mandatory minimum sentences and three strikes laws that assured that um, people for relatively low-level crimes were doing long, long terms. This isn't the place for the argument about whether Hillary Clinton should be held accountable for a bill that passed on her husband's watch, um, but it's, a, it's fair to ask the candidates what they think about that law now and whether they're 
parts of it that they would do differently or should repeal. Um, and there has been a bit of that discussion, uh, particularly on the Democratic side. Early on, when Rand Paul was in, uh, in the race, he uh, has a number of, kind of criminal justice reforms that he's big on. It's a kind of libertarian um, uh, point of view that the criminal justice system is just another e example of oppressive big government. So it's, it's actually a sort of philosophically understandable. Rand Paul's, I think, the only um, Republican I can think of, uh, of of stature who advocates giving uh, convicted felons their voting rights back. Um, so so it's, there, there have been these ripples. And of course, the candidates have responded, been asked to respond to uh, the Ferguson's, the, 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 the whole series of of video confrontations between yeah. police and people of color. And, um, and they've responded to some extent. So, I mean, I would like to see its profile raised, but the fact that they're talking about it at all, I think is a, my wife says I'm always supposed to say, it's no coincidence that, that the Marshall Project started in 2014 and suddenly everybody's talking about criminal justice. <laughs> <laughs> But one thing that has helped push it on the agenda a bit is that Obama has made it, tried to make it one of his legacy issues. So he's the, the first president in forever to go to a federal prison and visit it. And he, uh, he gave us an interview and, and let us moderate a panel discussion with the president of the United States. So he's, um, you know, try as they might, the Republicans can't ignore everything that the president does. Mm -hmm. You mentioned the word felon. I think that was the first time in our discussion that you mentioned it. I know you had a piece, a very interesting piece, on whether that should be a word that is used uh, in, in, in journalism. Talk a bit about that. I think that's an interesting yeah. issue. Yeah, I mean, this is, this is a subject that's been around probably since before I got into the, the picture. I wrote about it a year or so ago. Um, and, I mean, there, and there is a point of view that's, I think, gaining ground that we that people get out of prison and we put these labels on them that become labels for life you know so and so is a felon an ex-con the problem is what's the alternative and it, it, you know particularly if you're writing a one column headline in a print newspaper but even beyond that you know um, persons who have been incarcerated doesn't fit in a one column <laughs> print headline um, and and some of the alternatives that have been proposed sound a little precious. They sound mm -hmm. like artificial and if you use them five times in the same story, it sounds really like you're bending over backwards to, to prove that political, political correctness fears are justified. Um, you know, what I've told our writers is if you're writing about a category of people to, who are affected by a law or a policy, then you can describe, use, use words that people actually understand to describe who those people are. If they're, you know, um, convicted murderers or people serving life without parole or, uh, or uh, offender, drug offenders or ex-offenders. Um, but when you're talking about individuals, individuals have names. Uh, and so don't constantly keep referring to somebody you're interviewing in, in the piece as the felon or the ex-con um, you know, at least, you know, try not to define individual people who appear in stories by the worst thing they ever did in their life. Yeah. 
Uh, it's interesting, talking to that group of, uh, of people, I mean, so much of reporting is talking to the officials, the system, right? But talking to people in prisons, the incarcerated, um, what, what, what have you learned that surprised you in talking to that part of the kind of the people involved in this equation? Uh, I've learned that, that uh, which I, I guess maybe I knew intellectually, I think I've learned more viscerally that um, while there are definitely very scary people in prisons and uh, there are people that you would not want walking the streets, there are an awful lot of people who are reasonable, um, thinking human beings who screwed up really badly uh, and, yes, deserve to, do, to be punished for it. Um, uh, but I've met, a, I've met a fair number of people in prison that I would be comfortable having as next-door neighbors, <laughs> which, which does surprise me. I've been surprised on, on the flip side of that. On several occasions, I've been surprised by things that our reporters found that I thought, um, uh, you know, even a hard-bitten, jaded journalist would, couldn't be surprised by. We, we've written a lot about um, solitary confinement and the effects that it has on the mental health of prisoners. Um, and I thought we'd sort of plumbed the depths of that story until one of our reporters came in and said, have you ever heard about double selling? I said, no, what's that? And they said, that's where you take a, a cell about the size of a parking space that's designed for solitary confinement, but instead of putting one, one guy in there, you put two of them in there. And both of them are in there because they were too violent to be kept in the general population. And guess what? Sometimes they kill each other, uh-huh. literally. Uh-huh. Uh, and uh, we did that story in collaboration with NPR, uh, I mean, I was flabbergasted. Yeah. Um, so uh, I'm still shockable. That's, that's, I guess that's a healthy sign. It's been a great night. Thank you all for coming. Thank you, Bill, for joining us. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.